I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports are important. Hello, Second Captains listeners and hopefully soon-to-be World Service members. This is your weekly reminder about some of the great stuff you guys have been missing. Hey Murph. Hey Owen, how's it going? It's going, it's going just fine. It's with the usual amount of nonsense on the show this week. I, I mean, I never thought I'd spend quite so much of a working week talking about the time Ken Early attended a basketball camp run in the early 90s by John Stockton, mm. then one of the biggest stars in the NBA. That took up probably a needlessly large amount of <laughs> uh, broadcasting time. I mean, any, anything more than 0.1% of the of the broadcast yeah. week being taken yeah. up by that is probably overkill. And I think we, we questioned that, that figure no, pretty done. early on. Let's yeah, say yeah, even yeah. Stockton Monday, summer camp say. is done. Yeah. Let's, I let's, think let's leave done, that in the past. But we, we covered the serious stuff too, and there was no doubt about the most important topic we got into. That was trans inclusion in sport. Uh, given the news this week that FINA, World Swimming's governing body, has voted in these new guidelines that establish one of the strictest rules against transgender participation in international sport. The new rule prohibits transgender women from competing in elite women's events unless they began medical treatments to suppress production of testosterone before going through one of the early stages of puberty or by age 12, whichever occurred later. This decision to effectively ban transgender women from competing at the top level of women's swimming comes just three months after Leah Thomas became the first transgender woman to win an NCAA Division One swimming championship. It's been described by some as discriminatory, harmful and unscientific, but others have welcomed the decision. And Seb Coe, in fact, the president of World Athletics, has already hinted fairly strongly that his organisation might soon follow suit. Our guest on this was Joanna Harper. Now, Joanna is coming at this from a position of personal experience, as well as a deep knowledge of the science. She was a competitive runner who transitioned a number of years ago. And in the years since then, she's become one of the leading voices in this area as a medical physicist and an advisor to many of the international sports federations. She's now based at Loughborough University in the UK, where she's researching transgender athletic performance. We're going to play you a decent chunk of this interview. You might have already noticed this is a slightly longer promo than normal. Just want to give you a good sense of where Joanna was coming from on all this. So here you go. It is absolutely true that any human being who goes through a male-type puberty will gain significant advantages in sports over anyone who doesn't. And that includes trans women who don't start on 
uh, puberty blockers early in puberty. Tanner stage two is the medical term or, or the age of 12 is roughly the age that, that this therapy starts. So if trans women don't do the, this blockade of puberty at, at age 12, then, then they do gain these advantages. Now, some of these advantages are lost when trans women go on hormone therapy. For instance, hemoglobin values will quickly move from, from male levels to female levels. And hemoglobin is the single most important factor in endurance sports. But um, strength will be reduced, but not reduced to the level of, of cisgender women. And height's not going to be affected at all. And, and swimming height matters. And, and more particularly, it's the length of the limbs, arms and legs are, are better levers. So there will be some advantages retained. However, on the other hand, um, trans women who go through hormone therapy are now powering their larger frame with reduced muscle mass, reduced aerobic capacity, and that can lead to disadvantages in things like endurance, recovery, quickness. Um, additionally, trans women have a propensity to put on weight, and, and that is disadvantage disadvantageous in swimming and many other sports. Um, you know, there are advantages that are retained. There are disadvantages that are introduced. And, and how do these play out against one another? Well, truthfully, we don't really know for sure because there's very little data. Uh, and, and, and that's why I moved to Loughborough was, was to, mm. to help gather data um, we have three studies running. We have a longitudinal lab study where we try to get transgender athletes into the sports lab before they start hormone therapy, measure their size, strength, speed, stamina, get blood values, muscle biopsies, uh, pictures of the heart, uh, and repeat these every three months for up to 24 months. Um, we have a cross-sectional lab study where we get trans women uh, into the sports labs after they've been on hormone therapy and are participating in women's sports. Again, we measure size, strength, speed, stamina, and we compare those to a match cohort of uh, cisgender or typical female athletes uh, and, and see similarities and differences. So those are our two lab studies. We also have an online observational study that is sort of an extension of my first published study where we look at competition results before and after hormone therapy in sports like athletics or weightlifting or swimming, where it's easy to, to measure because you're just looking at numbers. Mm. So those are the three studies we have running. And the number of uh, participants that any one university can get in the transgender athlete field is small. Um, so while we've made a terrific start at Loughborough, uh, there won't be robust evidence until there are several universities in multiple countries doing this type of research. Given those advantages, though, Joanna, those inarguable advantages that do remain um, with transgender uh, women athletes, is it? What do you say to the argument that 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 is just basically unfair? That there's, there's that fairness is gone out the window. Then, given that no amount of testosterone suppression or anything like that is going to uh, diminish those those advantages enough. What I would say 
is that, um, you know, we allow and even celebrate advantages in sports. And, and what I, I would suggest is that it's not whether trans women maintain advantages, but whether those advantages are large enough to prohibit meaningful sport between trans women and cis women. And let me elaborate that. Left-handed athletes have advantages in many sports. It's most noticeable in the sport of fencing, where 40% of elite fencers are left-handed versus 10% of the population. Um, however, right-handed fencers can and do make up 60% of elite fencers. So right-handed fencers, even though they have disadvantages, can beat left-handed fencers. Mm. So, so there's an example where we have two disparate groups competing against one another. One group is as a group advantaged over the other, but we can have meaningful sport. The other, the opposite is if you have big boxers and little boxers, it doesn't matter how hard the little boxer trains, what their will to fight is, uh, how skilled they are as a boxer, they just can't beat a big boxer. The size differential is, is so important. And that's why we divide boxing into weight categories, because there's no meaningful competition between big boxers and little boxers. So the question isn't, do trans women have advantages? But are those advantages so large as to prohibit meaningful competition? And we do we, we just don't know the answer to that yet. Is that the point? We, we don't. There's certainly uh, indirect evidence that uh, trans women and cis women can have meaningful competition. It's indirect evidence. And, and uh, by that, we can look at population studies. And, and the most uh, meaningful or important population study would be NCAA sports in the United States. Um, in 2011, 11 years ago, the NCAA put in a policy allowing trans women to compete in NCAA sports after one year of hormone therapy. There are 200,000 women who compete every year in NCAA sports. Uh, trans people make up, you know, roughly a percent of the population. So, so we should be seeing at least 1,000 and probably more like 2,000 trans women competing every year in NCAA sports if trans women were equally represented. We don't know the exact number of trans women competing, but it's a handful. Certainly fewer than 50, undoubtedly less than 100. So in 11 years after uh, this rule was enacted, trans women aren't taking over NCAA sports. They're still hugely underrepresented, in fact. And so if these advantages precluded meaningful competition, then we would see it in the numbers, and we don't. And so this fact that so very, very few trans women are competing at NCAA levels uh, is, is a strong indicator, an indirect indicator, that we can have meaningful competition between trans women and cis women. So is your uh, opinion, John, at the moment that the best 
practice is testosterone suppression uh, and if so is there a magic number of, of the amount of months there because it's sometimes even the UCI recently it's gone from 12 months to 24 months for example um, I, I would say that um, first of all I, I would divide sport into two levels at recreational or grassroots sport we should just let people play and I would suggest if we're at a level of sport where there's no money involved, where there's no drug testing, uh, so if you're not uh, testing anybody else for their, their, the levels of, of things they maintain in their blood, we shouldn't test uh, require that of trans athletes either. <clears throat> but at, at high levels of sport, I would suggest that testosterone suppression for trans women is necessary, but perhaps not always sufficient. Um, and and I'll, I'll come back to that in, in just a minute. But um, the, so the, the two questions you ask is then, to what level do you suppress testosterone and for how long? And one of the, the things that's been a, a big point is, you know, what, level of testosterone in the blood should sporting governing bodies allow. And, and in truth, it probably doesn't make a lot of difference because trans women don't transition for sports. We transition to be more like other women. Mm. And so we bring our testosterone levels to the same levels of other women, which is less than two nanomoles per liter. So uh, up until now, sports governing bodies have either adopted either 10 or 5 nanomoles per liter. And it now appears that, that some governing bodies, um, you know, the UCI have come down to 2.5 nanomoles per liter. It's mentioned in the FINA, uh, and I will suspect that other governing bodies will come down to that. But trans women are still going to be under 2. Now, for how long should this testosterone suppression be? Well, um, <clears throat> I think that probably depends on whether we're talking about um, endurance sports or strength sports. Um, in endurance sports, as I say, the hemoglobin levels will come down pretty quickly to typical female levels. And um, while hemoglobin isn't the only uh, thing that, that factors into endurance performance is probably the single most important factor. And, and so there's certainly no need to go longer than 12 months if we are talking about endurance sports. And we might not even need to go that long. With strength sports, it's, it's far less clear. Um, how long does it take? Um, and trans women are never going to come down to entirely female levels of strength. But again, sports performance is multifactorial. And there was a study that came out of the U.S. Air Force that was published um, a little over a year ago that, that showed that um, a 31% advantage in the number of push-ups per minute entirely went away with two to two and a half years of hormone therapy. Um, and so that's even though the fact that trans women's strength wouldn't come down, but their ability to perform push-ups in this one group of, and, and it's not athletes, but as service personnel who, who are at least at a higher level of fitness than the general population. Um, 
So, so this advantage in the number of push-ups per minute entirely went away, um, but it took two years. So in strength sports, might it be reasonable to, uh, to have two years? And, and the UCI um, reasoned that lower body strength was important, and so that's why they decided to go to two years. I, I'm not sure that it's necessary in, in cycling, but, but that was their decision, and, and it is their decision to make. There you are. That's a good bit of our chat with Joanna Harper on the science around this issue. We did also talk to her uh, about the emotive side of things, this, the sense of exclusion that trans people feel when rules like this new one are brought in, uh, the reasons behind the massive amount of passion that this whole topic brings up in people, that's that's yeah. all covered as well. But we had a really positive reaction to the piece. And, you know, we know it can, it, it can be a, and is often a toxic conversation around this. I, our, our aim was to talk to talk to Joanna. I, we saw her name pop up quite a bit in the in recent mm. times. And she seemed like a very interesting person to talk to with her science background and her personal experience. So that that was kind of the aim to uh, to give her a chance to to you know exactly. help educate us all on this which is what we all need yeah and what you want to hear is uh uh the scientific viewpoint and the and the personal viewpoint because it's you know it's you can't separate one from the other um and that that would never have you know that's that would never obviously be our intention and just the fact that joanna is coming at it from her uh i would say almost unique perspective uh meant that you could actually have a conversation without without talking to two separate people coming at, at butting heads in a way that uh you know all too often is how these things are covered and I, and that's just a really sad uh reality uh for uh people trying to discuss this topic so thank you thank you to all of our members who got in touch to say that they that they really got something and learned something from the conversation you can judge for yourselves. You know what to do to hear that conversation in full. Become a member now of the Second Captain's World Service for only five euro a month plus VAT. The Second Captain's podcast is now part of the Acast Creator Network. If you sign up to the World Service, you'll be hearing all our podcasts ad-free. Thanks for listening to this. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Take care, and we hope to see you in the World Service soon. What does it look like? A turtle, is it? Yobs. There's an incredible podcast on at the moment produced by the Second Captains. Biggest load of bollocks. The Second Captains show in Ireland. We're now getting to that point now where we are inspiring. The Second Captains podcast. Pretty much we've done for the last 20 years. Be role models to kids. Hey, Pat, do you want to split? It's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports are important. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.